Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, read along with me in Acts chapter 7. I'm just going to reiterate the passage we looked at last time I was here, two weeks ago. In verse 51, Acts 7, 51, he says, and this is Stephen speaking, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into the heavens and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Now, as you know, we are studying the book of Acts, often known as the Acts of the Apostles, but really it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, while on earth, told his disciples that when he left to go be with his Father in heaven, that he would send the Holy Spirit, and therefore it was good that he leaves so that this would happen. And without the Holy Spirit, if you did not know this, the church would not exist. It is one of the unique things that makes the church the church in the fact that the Spirit dwells within us and within the church. You would not hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ if you had not had the Spirit open your eyes and heart to believe and to find salvation. You would not endure to the end of your life in the midst of times of suffering and persecution without the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit who seals all true believers until the, de- and, until the end, so that they persevere and do not fall away. In every way, shape, or form, our entire life is conformed and controlled and defined by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and yet we seldom acknowledge that or understand that. And the reason for that is also another aspect of the Spirit, and that is that He deflects the focus up off of Himself, and He's always pushing it toward the Son 
Jesus Christ. Well, this is what we find really in Acts chapter 7, a very clear working of the Holy Spirit in various ways. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We saw it in the conviction expressed by the uh, Stephan's hearers. They were cut to the core, the quick. But instead of repenting as they ought to have and coming to it by faith to Jesus Christ, they rejected it and they stoned him to death as a blasphemer. So I pointed out that this is, in fact, a key work of the Spirit. He convicts us. He takes truth, and it's always his truth, not man's truth, but the genuine article, if you will, and he brutally applies it to you and I. And for some, it confirms their hatred for God and his truth, and for others, it confirms that they are made new in Jesus Christ as they confess their sin and turn from their ways to Christ. But we also see the powerful way the Spirit makes a person new. And we see this in the person of Stephan. You and I are born dead in our sins, the Scripture says. We sin because we are sinners by nature. There is none good, no, not one. Nothing we have can change that. Nothing we can do will ever fix that. In fact, we can't even cooperate with God and help ourselves be so-called saved. But then the Spirit comes when the gospel is preached and only when the gospel is preached and takes a person and makes them alive in Christ Jesus. And all things now change and a new life has begun in the soul of this person. We will see shortly that the result of that is true spiritual fruit. It always comes forth from the person who has been made new in Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. But when a person tries to replicate this fruit on his own, in other words, a non-Christian tries to act like a Christian, they always stumble in the end. They cannot stand, and certainly they will not stand for the name of Jesus in the day of persecution. But that is why Stephen stood firm. His hope was no longer in the here and the now, but in the new heavens and the new earth that were promised with the return of Christ. So he was able to face death, empowered by the Spirit, and he embraced even his death because he knew death could not hold him because Jesus had defeated death in his own death. And so his body slept, his spirit was immediately brought into the presence of his Savior. And in that moment, as the final stones were hurled at his bruised and bleeding body, we see true faith on display. We see the work of the Spirit bringing out genuine faith. It was a faith that wasn't the product of the mind of man, but rather the mind of God himself, the Spirit. Now, all of us have faith in something. And many will say that their faith is found in Jesus Christ. But in suffering for the name of Jesus, we will see that faith in a new light. Any person can read the scripture and then claim that they understand the scripture. All religious leaders who condemned Stephen were in fact men who believed they could read the scripture and understand the scripture, but in fact, they were blind And because of that, they were blind to their blindness. 
But Stephen was a man born of the Spirit, speaking in the power of the Spirit, and using the words of the Spirit, the Word of God itself. And as a result, he was hated by them, but as he faced the persecution and certain death, he displayed a mindset that was of the Spirit. <coughs> Again, we can claim we love Jesus, but what, do we, what will we portray when we're being persecuted for the name of Jesus? Well, we have with Stephen an example. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What confession? It's the confession of faith in Christ, that he is the Son of God, God in human flesh, who has died and risen again. For we do not have, he says, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the writer tells us that we have been saved and we are called to hold fast that confession of our hope in Jesus alone. And then he explains why. He says that Jesus is our high priest and he sympathizes with our weakness, knowing that we ourselves are weak and prone to wander and stumble and in need of great help. And he says, therefore, we bid you to come through the high priest of Jesus to the Father who will give you the grace. All of this is a work of the Spirit, though. And so here we see it with uh, Stephen, this man at the point of the most extreme danger in verse 56, looks and instead of seeing death, sees his Lord. In fact, the, the Lord is so kind that the Spirit opens his eyes that he sees the heavens opened up and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father. This is a, a mystery it's an incredible vision, but it only comes because the Spirit has brought it to him. It is the Spirit's job to reveal these things. And here is this poor sinner, Stephen, saved by grace, even as he is dying. And he sees Jesus, and he cannot help but point the people to Jesus. He proclaims, I see him. I see him. And he speaks of Jesus. But they don't see. They don't believe. They showed their hearts of unbelief. They'd drag him out to kill him instead. And as the stones rained down, Stephen again, by the power of the Spirit, cries out that his Savior would forgive them. He cries out to be received by Jesus. He shows that his faith rests in Christ alone. He doesn't say, receive me because of my good works. Receive me because all of the efforts I've done. Receive me because I've done this or done that. He simply cries out that Jesus would receive him. No declaration of his own efforts, just a cry calling for grace. And that prayer was answered. But before he was brought safely into the presence of his king and his deliverer, he shows another aspect of God's grace. 
Remember, in Hebrews, we're called to come to our Father in a time of need for the grace that he will give us. Oftentimes, you and I define that grace as to what we think we need, right? When we go to God and we ask him for help and we ask him for strength, what we are asking him is oftentimes what we in our own minds have perceived we need, but God will always give you the grace you need. And he will give it to you so that you accomplish what you ought to accomplish. If you will just simply come because of the Spirit's prompting and because you have a faithful high priest in Jesus Christ and you say, I will go to my Father and seek grace. What was the grace that he gave? He gave him the grace to see Jesus at the point of his death. He gave him the grace to cry out, to receive him. Even there, he's witnessing, but then finally, he gives him the grace to forgive those who are killing him and ask the Father to forgive them. This is the grace. Not strike them dead. I hate them. Rather, here's a man literally on the edge of death, and he cries out in the power of the Spirit that God would give him the grace and have the grace to forgive them. That's a man born of the Spirit. What we saw together, the persecution, is something to be expected. That was my very first principle on this whole theology of uh, martyrdom that I'm wanting to work us through. I gave you, uh, I I said I had four principles, and we only got to one, and we're only going to get to one today as well. The first principle I gave you was that we ought not to be surprised when we face persecution. The problem is, though, we are often surprised. And if you don't anticipate suffering and persecution, then what will happen to you, beloved, is that it will set you up for great despair and even stumbling. I can tell you with absolute certainty that for 25 years now I've been here, I have been warning you and trying to prepare this church for the day of persecution since my very first Sunday. It has always been my strong conviction all the way back to when I was in college that we are approaching a day of great persecution. And I have not ceased to warn you, and I am now all the more wanting to warn you of the day in which you will either stand or fall upon your confession of Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us over and over again, do not be surprised by your suffering as something strange has happened, and yet we often are. And when you do that, all you do is set yourself up to fail. It's interesting that a little bit later in the book of Acts, you're going to find a man named Barnabas going to Antioch, which is a wonderful little Gentile church. His message to them in chapter 11 was to help them remain true to the Lord. Why? Because that little church is now suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Then a little bit later, Barnabas and Paul, who is right now Saul, and he's standing there holding the coats of these men who are killing Stephen, that same man now named Paul and Barnabas again go back to Antioch, and it says that they reminded the church that through many tribulations they shall enter the kingdom of God. 
Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, that we will all have many tribulations in this world, but that we are to take courage because he has overcome this world or this age. But you and I have to learn to own that. We have to learn to own the reality that through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God, through uh, that there are many tribulations coming our way, And even though your life up to this point might have been and has been wonderfully pleasant overall, you should never assume that is to be your lot to the end of your day. If you confess Jesus Christ, then my question to you before we go any further is simply this. Have you settled that in your heart? Have you just accepted the fact that you will experience hatred by this world, persecution within your own family, derision, and potentially some level of suffering up to and including death. Have you settled that? And if you haven't, beloved, then you need to do some heart searching as to why. Well, with that in mind, I want us to go then to our next principle. If we are called not to be surprised by the suffering that is coming, because it is part of God's will and part of God's plan, then what's the second principle? The second principle that I would give you is that our task, therefore, since suffering is promised, since persecution is promised, what our second principle is not to fret over that possibility of persecution and death, but simply be found faithful to our task. Nothing really deep there. Our task is not to fret over the possibility that we may suffer. Our job is simply to be found faithful to our task. Now, fretting is a word that you and I don't use very much today, perhaps, but it's really a good word. It's actually connected to the idea of anger and being consumed. It speaks of being eaten away inwardly. It happens when things are out of your control, when things go wrong and not according to your plans, and you won't let it go. Another word that the English uses for this word in um, the Hebrew and uh, Greek is the word vexed. Have you ever been vexed? It's a great word. It's this inward consumption where you're being consumed from the inside out because things are out of your control. If you wonder what it looks like, you can see it with a child who tries to take a toy away from his little brother and he ends up getting rebuked for it, and he has to give the toy back, and then he sits there, and watch. you watch him, and he frets, and he becomes vexed, and he becomes exercised and frustrated because he can't have the toy, and if he just had the toy, life would be good, but he can't. And you just watch him, and he's just a consuming little ball of vexation. And you're like, oh, dude, get over it. It's a toy except that we see it in our own lives, don't we? All of you have dreams and plans that are stymied. You lie awake at night trying to figure out how to change things. You become bitter. 
and you can't let something go and it begins to eat away at your heart. And so you become sullen and discontent. You strike out at others because things aren't going the way you think they ought to go. In other words, it is, to use a biblical word, it is sin. In fact, Proverbs 21.19, Solomon uses that term for uh, vexation, and he says to his son that it's difficult to live with a wife who is vexing or fretful. Why? Well, because she's a wife who's unhappy with the decisions made by her husband or the decisions not yet made by her husband. And so she drags her heel, metaphorically speaking, trying to wear down her husband as she's consumed with this distrust of him as she fights and nags and resists him until he gives in to her wishes. Solomon says it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a home like that. If you wonder if it's only for the woman, though, it's not. uh, The book of Proverbs is written to a man, his son, preparing him to become king. But you can flip that around and you take a man who cannot accept things when they don't go his way, who becomes consumed and walks around kicking at things and cursing and mumbling and being angry under his breath. And you have a man who is a fretful man, a vexed man, and he is very difficult to live with as well. Well, fretting is the lifestyle of those who have only this life and age in which to live. If you doubt me, look around and see if what I say is not true. The life of fretting is the life of those who only live here and now. They have nothing beyond this life. Contentment is a rare jewel in anyone's life, but especially one who is bound up into the here and now. Very seldom will you find a non-Christian truly content. And if a person says they are content, just give them a couple years and you'll find it not to be true. It was not that long ago that we called it keeping up with the Joneses. And now with the advent of the internet and social media, it only spurs us all the more into this sense of entitlement and desire for something other than what we have Even though Jesus tells us repeatedly, do not store up our treasure here on this earth where thieves and moths and rust destroy, but rather store it up in heaven for us, we keep hearing that and then giving all the reasons why we will not do that. And then we wonder why our hearts are full of vexation, but it's because our treasure is here. And what's strange is when you finally get what you desire, you find that it's not sufficient. And when you meet someone who claims it's sufficient, again, you merely have to wait. But the fruit of discontentment is fretting. Oftentimes, during the good times, it's hidden in the depths of the interior of the person. But it's there. It's this ember that is always glowing and gnawing away at your soul. And so James writes in chapter 4, verse 2 of his little letter, He says that the source of our fighting and even murder itself is this fretting. He says, you lust and do not have, and so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Well, the threat of persecution 
or suffering is a sure way for many to begin to fret. Think about what happened during just the time of COVID and some of the things that were being said and some of the pressures that were being put upon the church and and Christian relationships. Think about what it was like during the riots here in Kenosha. How many of you lay awake fretting, consumed with it, worried, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me, my family, what? And, And all of a sudden you become consumed with these things. The threat of persecution or suffering is always a sure way for many to become fretful, to lie awake and think about every possible scenario, how to prevent it from happening. It leads to tension and irritation and eventually the simmering boil of anger as you find yourself resenting that your safety, your family's safety is threatened. And the Bible says, do not be surprised. Why are you surprised? Well, go to Psalm 37. If you're using the Pew Bible and you're not sure where that's at, it's right in the middle of the Bible on page 407. Psalm 37 talks about this fretting. And it's the king, King David himself, telling himself, and all of Israel to not fall into this all-too-easy pit. And in Psalm, we're going to just touch on this very quickly, but in verse 1, I want you to, I'll read down to verse 9. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. Why? For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. And he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because a man who, is, who carries out wicked schemes... Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. There's a lot in those few verses. In verse 1, he just flat out says, do not fret. But why? What is the cause of it? The cause of it is evildoers, people doing that which is wicked. What you have with Stephen. These men are hating the one whom they claim they're waiting for, the Messiah, the Christ. He proclaims to them the Christ. They don't want to hear it. They shut their ears. They become angry with him. They drag him out. They are evildoers. What would happen to you if you watched your friend Stephen drug out from this church by people and taken out to the gutter and a gun stuck to the head and just capped him right there? What would happen to your hearts? This isn't done in a vacuum. This was done in real life. And the whole church saw their beloved Stephen killed. The whole church knew what happened. And King David says, do not fret because of evildoers. Don't become envious of those 
who seem to have comfort and safety. Do not model yourself after them. Why, he says in verse 2, because they will wither quickly like the grass. And you say, not quick enough for my heart. How many of you do you think, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but how many of you would think that you might wish that you could wish all of those people who harmed Stephan to be struck dead right then by the wrath of God? Think about that. How many of you wish that it would have been awesome if God had swept in in his fury and defended Stephan to the uttermost and wiped dead all of those who were seeking to harm Stephan? Wouldn't that have been awesome? And you would never have had the Apostle Paul. As he is a young man, is holding the coats while the older men strike this man dead, unbeknownst to all, in a short time, he too would be confronted with the gospel and he would come to faith and you would have most of your New Testament written by that man. We become envious, we become fretful, strike them dead. And we cannot. Instead, David gives us a series of commands in verses 3 through 8. And, and just note them. I'm going to touch them really quickly. Their trust, do, dwell, cultivate, delight, commit. And then again, trust. And then now down in verse 7, rest, wait, don't fret, cease, forsake. And then again, do not fret. Do you see what I'm saying? That second principle is instead of fretting over the coming persecution that may be yours, just be busy doing what you're supposed to be doing. David, the king, doesn't say fret over all of these things. Now store up everything and get yourself all ready so you can climb down into your bunker and flee. He says, no, continue to simply be faithful in the things you're called to do. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently and don't fret. Stop being angry. Forsake wrath and don't fret. You think he wants you to stop fretting? Three times in this short little section, do not fret. Do what what is right. Do what is good. Then notice also, though, in verses 4, 5, and 6, in the midst of all that, he doesn't just give you the commands, but he weaves these promises of God. In verse 4, he says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you say, well, he hasn't. Then I'm going to say you probably haven't yet delighted yourself in the Lord. One is required before the other comes. Is the Lord enough, or is it only the Lord and safety? Is the Lord enough, or is it also wealth? Is the Lord enough, or is it also your reputation? What is it that might prevent you from delighting yourself in the Lord? He gives you a wonderful promise. When you learn to do it, he will give you the desires of your heart. In verse 5, 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And what will he do? He will do it for you. He will bring you the way that you ought to go. And you say, yeah, but it might not be the way I want to go. And it's like, well, that's why you don't delight yourself in the Lord, because you're afraid of what might come. And at some point, you'll have to come to grips with whether or not you're truly even a Christian. Have you come to grips that God has promised that the path leading to life is through tribulation. He says it. Will you commit your way and say, Father, I'm scared, but I'll go, and I'll follow, I'll commit, and I'll delight, and I learn what that means. He will guide you in your way. What a wonderful promise. And then verse 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as your light and show you to be a true and right in the end. He says, your judgment as the noonday. He says, in the end, when it is necessary and right to do so, I will vindicate you. You will stand before all and shown to be mine. Now, we want it just short of the sword falling, right? Just short of the imprisonment, just short of the loss of our employment, just short of our loss of reputation. The Lord says, no, in my time, you will be vindicated, but it will be my time. Well, fretting always results in action. Fretting always results in action, but it's always the wrong action. Wrong decisions made because you have the wrong motivation. Think about how many things you chose in your life out of fretting and worry that you now regret. Kim and I had a friend, more hers than mine, but nonetheless a friend, way back, we're talking 40 years ago, whose whole consuming desire was to marry. And the Lord had not given her a husband, and she finally found a man that vaguely stated that he was a Christian, wasn't really going to church or anything, but, but he, he liked her, and she liked him, and, and, and all she could think about was she wanted to be married and had to be married, and the next thing you know, ultimately, we had warned her against this situation, and she ultimately chose to marry him, and she was convinced that she could help him grow and change him and all of the other things that we say to ourselves. And not only did she not do that, but she discovered that he was a violent man as well as a wicked man, and the rest of her life was pierced through with heartache, all born out of a fretful soul. All of us can point to some place in our life where we made decisions because we're fretting and we're trying to calm the spirit down rather than finding our rest in Christ. When you fret, what you do is you forget God's sovereignty over all things. You forget God is still guiding your ways. You forget that even evil is worked out for good by God. When you fret, it is you and your ways that become central. Your prayers no longer are like your Savior. Do not forget him that when he was in the garden facing the evil 
of those who sought his death when facing the horror of becoming sin on our behalf that we might live. Twice he prayed to his father to remove this. And yet twice he said, not my will, but yours be done. That's not a heart of fretting. That's a heart of submission. This is why Peter writes in his little letter in 1 Peter 2, he says, you have been called for this purpose. Beloved, missio Dei. Missio Dei, you have been called for this purpose. What's the purpose? Well, the context is you've been called to suffer. You've been called for this purpose since, since, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to those to him who judges righteously. And... He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. For what purpose? That we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. He bore your sins. He walked down the path of suffering before you ever did. He's called you to follow him, but it's a path of suffering. He says, I will model for you how you are to be. He entrusted himself to his father who judges all things righteously and will vindicate. But he also says, so that we would live to righteousness. In other words, so that we then, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him as our sin bearer, his death for our sin, his resurrection for our life. He says, having trusted that, it's not now, okay, now we go our way, but now we live to righteousness. We're called to faithfulness now, not fretting. Not storing things up here and now because what are we going to lose? What are you going to lose? What will any of us lose? You die. Every one of you will die and you will leave far more than you should behind. Always holding and grasping and afraid, fretting. Worried, what if, what if, what if? When has God failed you? He cannot fail you because to fail you is to fail himself. He cannot deny himself. He will safely see you to the end. Commit your way to him. Delight yourself in his ways. You say, but, but you don't understand. I know I don't understand. But Jesus understands. He's your faithful high priest. He's your sympathetic high priest. He understands you're afraid. He's he's aware of all of the things that right now you're thinking in your brain. He's unimpressed with it. He still loves you. He still bears away your weaknesses and your sins. He is sufficient. 
or he's not. But there is no middle ground. There is a wide path and there is a narrow path. There's not a sort of moderately difficult path for those who are a bit timid. So David, in this psalm, in Psalm 37, verses 9 and 10, he reminds himself, and therefore us, that in a little while all shall be made right. He says, but to those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the devil is in that little phrase, in a little while, isn't it? That's where the devil is. Because it's not in our time frame. And if it's not in our time frame, then by golly, we're going to fret. But when you submit yourself to God, and you delight yourself in the way of the Lord, and you look at Jesus as your example, then you realize that little while will be the right time. So what do we do instead of fretting? Well, the last part of verse 3 gives it to us. Cultivate faithfulness. Now, if you have the King James, that's not what it says. And so I'm just going to make a quick mention of that. In the Hebrew, it, and I'm not going to get into this, um, you, there's an adverbial phrase that we can take one way or the other, and the King James translators chose to take it a different way. And so it talks about how we will maintain our nourishment, um, but that's probably not the best rendering of it. I think the other ones are better, which is the cultivate faithfulness. In other translations, you have uh, befriend faithfulness or maintain your integrity. What he is saying to you, is that you are called to cultivate just simply doing what's right. In times of persecution, we will all face the temptation to react with anger and worry or fretting. We will watch as those who we love are hurt, and we'll want to respond in a way to bring them to safety. We want to repay back evil for evil. We will want to strike back. but we can't. Not when we suffer in the name of Christ. We can't. We have to do the shameful thing. We have to do the thing that this world will say, that's stupid. We go the path of weakness and we entrust ourselves to the one who will judge faithfully. In the end, we trust our Lord. And then, as the persecution is there, we're asking ourselves the same question over and over again. What is it we ought to be doing? And then, guess what you do? You go do it. It's not hard. It's not hard. The antidote to fretting, the antidote to worry is to shut up and go get busy doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. 
And as you do that, you'll find that the Spirit of God will strengthen you. He will strengthen you to the task so that even at the very end, as maybe somebody is doing you such great harm that your life is passing before you, that you will be able to cry out by the power of the Spirit, Father, forgive them. What does it matter that you're going to die? Go over to 2 Timothy now. 2 Timothy, way in the back of the Bible, if you're not sure. It's on page 166, right near the back of your Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible. 2 Timothy, we looked at this last time. Second Timothy chapter 3, I just want to build off of what I didn't have time last week to say. 12 through 14, First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 14, he says, and indeed, so here's Paul now, and indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might possibly, but we doubt it, be persecuted. Right? I mean... All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. So it's not just we want to live a certain way. It's to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I said last week that what in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of suffering, there's always a false teacher who will come and tell you, no, no, no. That's not what you're supposed to be experiencing. They'll always tell you the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, that that's not yours. You need to claim it. You need to trust it. You know, if you were just a little bit more winsome, if you're a little bit more nuanced, if you just took a little bit more of a broader approach, that you you didn't emphasize this, and don't you understand the Bible just whispers about that, and on and on, the kind of things we hear all the time in this American evangelical world we dwell within, that you will somehow maintain a good report among the people. And Jesus says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the whispers are there. No, 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 not for you, not for you, not if you do this. But what I want you to look at is verse 14. He says, you, however, he's saying this to his Dear Timothy, he says, you, however, continue in the things you've learned. Don't be like them and don't listen to them. He says, the things you learned, the things you became convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. And I said last time I preached this, I was his grandma, it was his mom, and it was Paul. He's like, you know where you heard this. You heard this from your grandma when you come to her and she put you up on the lap and she told you the faithfulness of the Yahweh, the true God. You heard it from your mama and you heard it from me. He said, just stay there. The answer is just simply this, beloved. When you are facing the reality of persecution, the answer will always be the same. Learn truth and then stay there in that truth. Learn the word of God well, and then don't stray from the word of God. You want to know what frustrates your elders? That in the time of plenty, you keep thinking you have tomorrow to learn. 
and you never store up the wisdom for the day when persecution comes and you're not ready for it. And then you're washed away. You learn it, hear it, receive it, store it up so that in the day of persecution, you can stand. And I can say with certainty that when you allow other kinds of doctrines and ideas to conform your thinking to their ways, you're at great risk. It only shows that you may have learned various biblical doctrines, but you're by no means convinced of those doctrines. When you seek peace elsewhere, your joy then becomes wrapped up in other things and other hopes. Your hope rises and falls with the markets and the whispers of war or unrest. Your self-control is bound up in your goals for weight loss or chances of a marriage rather than just faithfulness to God. And then the persecution comes and you stumble. And so when you come to grips that suffering and persecution is something you are to expect and also that God expects you to be faithful in it, then you can learn to prepare for it. Not through the acquisition of weapons or food stores. Not through the building of a compound with really good defense systems. But by learning in the days of peace to be found faithful to the many things Christ, a Christian, has called or is called to be. You, you say, okay, so what do you want? Simple. All of you can take your Bibles and find every book that Paul wrote and take the second half of every one of his letters and you'll find that he is giving you ample things that you should be busy doing. The first half of everything Paul writes is doctrinal. It's the why. And then the second half of his writings is always, what do you do in light of what we have learned to be true? We read some of that with Daniel as he read it, that we are to be worthy of the calling with which we have been called in Ephesians 4. But simply consider the commands we saw in Psalm 37. Just, just think about those. Trust, do, dwell, cultivate, delight, commit. Again, trust. Again, rest, wait, don't fret, cease, forsake. And again, don't fret. Isn't that enough for all of you for the rest of your life right there? I mean, do you really need to know anymore? Do good. In fact, let me, let me encourage you as that are in the community groups that this is something you can do this time when you gather. Have people, everyone, make it uncomfortable. Don't let somebody just sit there and hide. Everyone, contribute to practical ways what it would look like to do those commands. Do it in your home or whatever discipleship relationship that you're having. Press it so it's not just doctrine in a vague way, but it's reality of one's life where you learn to practice and cultivate faithfulness. But the command to do good, that's not hard to figure out. It's the idea of being a blessing to those around you, to seek their good in both word and deed, to obey the law, to show courtesy or kindness wherever possible, to build rather than to destroy, to give rather than to take. Just do good. 
cultivate faithfulness. What's that look like? In other words, seek to be a joy, to be around. The Proverbs describe like smoke in the eyes or vinegar to the teeth, so is the lazy one to him who sent him. If I were to take you and send you to go do a task and you are a lazy man, then all you do is become an irritation to me, a frustration because you're not what? You're not faithful. The one thing that's so valuable to anyone who's in leadership is to have people around him or her and be able to check it off in your mind when you give them an assignment, say, can you do this? And they say, sure, and that you already checked it off in your mind because they're faithful. They're just simply faithful to do it. That's what you and I are to be as men and women faithful. You pour that into your children that they're expected to be faithful. And until they do their task faithfully, they haven't done their task. A dependable, honest person who keeps his word, a a person who works hard, who pays his taxes and honors those in authority, wherever that may be, to seek to promote the well-being of your community. How about to commit your ways to the Lord? What about that? What would that look like? Well, this starts with having a way in which you're going, a plan that's in your mind that you're not carried away by the moment. From the point that you make the plan, then you commit it to the Lord in prayer over and over again as you move forward. As the Lord wills, grant me wisdom, Lord, with this situation. Open my eyes to options maybe I haven't thought about. Right now, the elders are working through various decisions. Grayson has got major things going on in his life right now with regard to the plan. And the only way we can do it is say, well, this is our plan. We're going to commit it to the Lord. And then as we keep pressing forward and we have resistance and and problems arise up and we don't know which way to go, we keep committing it to God. Show me, Father, what's the best way to honor you in this effort? And it's just this constant under-your-breath prayer as you move forward with your plan. Learn to delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, be a person of true worship, not a Sunday morning Christian, as they say, which is, in fact, no Christian at all. But one who understands that all of life is an expression of worship. Everything you do shows what you worship. So find obeying God in all your ways to be something you learn to desire. Delight in the gospel. That though persecution and suffering may come, it's enough for you to know that your soul is safe. These are just examples of what it might look like. But all I'm saying to you is for you and I, we need to make certain that we cultivate this faithfulness rather than fretting. Jesus says this in John 8, 31. He says, if you continue in my word, then you're truly my disciples of mine. And then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Well, true saving faith always will start and end with what the Bible says about Jesus and what he's done. But true saving faith also produces a stable abiding or remaining in what the Bible says. He says, if you abide in my word, and as you learn the word of God, and as you learn to abide in it, you begin to see how truly free you are. 
That's what's so weird about it is everyone that I know of who's not a Christian and, and they're raised in a Christian home, any of you sitting here, any of you kids who have not trusted in Christ, I'll guarantee you what your issue is. Most likely, you are thinking that if you came to faith, you have to stop all sorts of things, which you're right. You see that coming to Christ is a restriction rather than freedom. And Jesus says, once you know the truth and you learn to remain in the truth, you're free. It's the strange thing. And only when the Spirit so brings the gospel to a person's heart that they finally discover that and experience that freedom. Martin Luther said this, wherever faith is genuine, it cannot hold its tongue. It would rather suffer death. Such faith will also confess God's word before tyrants. To be sure, it will encounter all sorts of trials and temptations from the devil as martyrs amply experienced. So here's what's so strange about what I've been talking about. We're called to be like Israel, who, when led away into captivity, that they were called by God to do something in that time. Well, we're in enemy territory. We're described as aliens and strangers in this world. And listen to what he told Israel in Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare, the peace, the shalom. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. In its peace, you will have peace. So he encouraged them in learning that in time, in 70 years specifically, God would rescue them out of this captivity. The problem is vast majority of the people reading those words were going to die before then. What he says is, listen, in the meantime, what do you do to create up? Are you supposed to create up a little terrorist organization so that you can torment these people, make them sorry they ever brought you into captivity? No, he says, be a godly faithful witness of me in the land. And in the midst of that, he warns them in verse 8 that there will be false prophets coming who will tell them, no, 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 do something else. That this time in the land, this persecution that is yours because of your sin, that's not of the Lord. You can resist, you can hate, you can fight, and God says, don't listen to them. You're in this land Right now, for a time, be faithful in it. That's what Stephen is doing in our passage. At the very point of his death, he's still doing what's good and right. Isn't that amazing? He's still being kind and sweet and gentle. He's telling still the people about Jesus. He's, he's not trying to cause trouble, but he's also not trying to get out of trouble. He's just being faithful. He's handling this as an honorable man. His duty is not to save himself. It's to be a faithful spokesman of the gospel. Beloved, what will freeze you is nothing more than the fear of it. If, you're, if you find yourself consumed in that way, then I would encourage you today to go home and write down all the ways that you have suffered persecution for the name of Christ. I will also tell you, don't 
get very much paper because you only need a small post-it, if even that. Your fretting is not out of reality. It's out of fear. What freezes you is the fear of what might happen, and so you never act out in faithfulness. But you cannot let the fear of opposition and hurt be the basis of obedience. You can't. The Bible is very clear that through the many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Only those who endure to the end shall be saved. That means something. So instead of worrying about what might happen, simply lower your head in faithfulness to the task at hand. It's to be a student if you're going to school. It's to be a wife or a husband or father. It's to go to work during the time of work and work faithfully. It's a time to rest when it's time to rest. But it's whatever you're doing, do it faithfully. Be that godly husband or wife, that faithful employer or employee. Obey your mom and dad. Submit to the authorities. Pay your taxes. Honor those who are over you. Speak good and true things. Above all, seek to honor the Lord in all your dealings and accept what comes as coming from God as a result. And if the waves of hate rush over you, that you will find out that just like Stephan, you'll be fine because God is with you. Let's pray. Holy Father, help us. Easy words to preach, easy words to hear, hard words to live out. Not because of your unfaithfulness, but because of ours, because of our timidity, our, our tendency to re- resent the loss of anything in this age. Father, we get weary of swimming up the stream against the constant pressures of this world, and I pray that the Spirit would rest upon us in such a way that we would learn to look to our right and to our left and find other faithful brothers and sisters and encourage them, and that they might then encourage us, that we would press on running the race set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. That we would not lose hope, but they would see him as the true example of the one whom we are to follow, that we are safe in him and that he will bring us home. Father, we need your grace in our time of need. We don't know when that time of need is, but we know that we need grace now, so we ask for it. Bless us as we go about our day. Bless us as we seek to honor you in your son's holy name. Amen.